Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is Alejo Stark. In this episode, we speak with Joshua Clover, author of Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings, a professor of literature and critical theory at the University of California, Davis, about the ongoing crisis of racial capitalism and its relation to riots and the carceral state. But before we begin, here's Cave Syed with some movement news you may have missed. On October 19th, after several months of grassroots activism and legal challenges, the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1700 put out a statement opposing the Border Patrol from boarding Greyhound buses without warrants or probable cause. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has been boarding Greyhound buses without warrants and racial profiling passengers and demanding documentation. Greyhound has yet to exercise their Fourth Amendment right to deny the CBP boarding their buses and threatening their customers, despite calls from the ATU, the ACLU, and several activist groups like Solidarity and Defense in Michigan. On November 7th, hot meals were terminated for inmates in the Intensive Management Unit at Clayland Bayer Corrections Center in Washington State, sparking a hunger strike across the unit. The decision to terminate hot meals was made under the guise of a test run of a violence reduction strategy. However, inmates have raised concerns that this action is part of a wider cost-cutting strategy and is being used to discriminate against inmates on the basis of color, religious affiliations, and political beliefs. 43 out of 62 inmates in the intensive management unit are currently striking. As the migrant caravan from Central America continues to make its long, arduous journey on foot northward, multiple actions across the globe have expressed solidarity with the traveling migrants. Throughout the month of October, from Halifax to Los Angeles to New York City, organizers held rallies in support of freedom of movement. Since the caravan first entered Mexico, People across that territory have contributed to the material needs of the asylum seekers by providing migrants with food, water, shelter, and medical care. This is A. Maria, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Joshua Clover is a professor of literature and critical theory at the University of California, Davis, and author of Riot, Strike, Riot. And today he's joining Alecona in Buenos Aires to discuss rebellion and incarceration in relation to the recurrent crisis of state and capital. Welcome, Joshua, and thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. So uh, we often begin our episodes on a more biographical note. Uh, your academic formation is in poetry, right? If I have an academic formation, it's in poetry, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so one could say that there is a certain poesis in riots. Uh, a certain force of creation, which is also to say a certain force of destruction. And can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances in which a poet finds himself writing a book about riots? I could definitely go for the full 25 minutes on that question, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try not to. Um, the first thing I'll say is, like I'll, I'll say my slightly grumpy historical thing, which is it seems strange to people now, especially I think in the United States where there's an idea of of poets that's quite curious why would a poet possibly be writing on on these matters if you go back to the 19th century a fine century not the best century but it was okay every major political economist published a book of poetry marx published a book of poetry mill published a book of poetry samuel bailey who is sort of the the progenitor of marginalist economics published a book of poetry it's actually quite common the association of poetry and political economy poetry and these kind of social sciences and it's only in the 20th century and only in certain places in the world that that sense of that linkage gets broken. So in some sense, I think I'm just doing quite a common thing that feels peculiar in a certain place and time. That said, there I am in that place and time, so I understand how it seems strange. 
certainly for me, as someone who wrote poetry, writes poetry and writes about poetry, I think I did run into sort of a crisis of conscience. Uh, I believed, I think, a quite liberal set of things about what literature could do for the world and transform people's hearts and minds. At the same time, I was trying to take seriously the historical materialist project, which is maybe more skeptical about the precedence of ideas and material relations. Uh, and I was running up against that limit. So that was sort of hovering in the air. I was continuing my own studies of uh, Marx, of Marxist studies, of political economy in a fairly uh, as, as um, ambitious a sense as I could. I also have an undergraduate degree in science. I'm sort of interested in the formalization of it all. Of it all. Uh, and so these things were all happening around the time of 2008, the economic crisis uh, in the United States. And I decided I really wanted to understand how finance worked. And I mean, in a, from the bourgeois perspective, like what these things were people were talking about. And so I threw myself into the study of that, uh, you know, not as a poet so much, but as a, as a person. And I was continuing my poetry scholarship alongside. And then while these things were happening, also these various events started to happen in the Bay Area where I live. Uh, there was a lot of uh, several riots in 2009 in Oakland and Berkeley. Uh, by 2011, you had Occupy Oakland, the port blockade and various things. So these are the contexts in which I was then trying to apply my studies in sort of theories of value, not to abstract sort of structures of consciousness, but to these practical activities people were engaged in in the streets. So that's where I ended up being a person who writes about riots. Often in the United States, the word riot pejoratively defines reprehensible activity. So even comrades on the left, for instance, insist that the 1967 Detroit riots be instead called a rebellion, given that the riot is the word used by the state to undermine the political character of the riot. You, on the other hand, find that the riot is a terrain of struggle. We should not cede the word to the state to define it for us. And can you talk about why you think this distinction is an important one? I'm not sure it is an important one, <laughs> um, which is to say, I think if people want to call what they've done a rebellion or insurrection, uh, it's certainly not my place to stop them or dis disagree with them. In a way, like I don't want to have a debate with them. They're already doing their thing. Uh, I want to have a debate exactly with the people you mentioned who treat the term as pejorative or exclude the riot from the political. So from the state's perspective, riots are just bad, disorderly, evil, pernicious, destructive. And from a traditional left perspective, also they're sort of exterior to politics. They're spontaneous. They're just momentary responses to temporary stimulus. Uh, and I wanted to argue with both those positions at once uh, to say, well, fine, I accept there's this thing that you call a riot. Let's try and understand what it really is, what its contexts are, how it works, why we see them in some places and times more than others, uh, and try and grasp them uh, in their fullness, even as we admit uh, that, that they exist in, uh, as this phenomenon that, that, that we can both agree on. Uh, so... For me, that was an important project was to take back, not the word, but the set of concepts underlying the word uh, from both the state and the orthodox left. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that's by way of saying, 
Yes, it, they're both, both true. That thing you call a riot, the people who call it an uprising are correct. Uh, but let's see not how to properly uh, choose the right word, but to see what the phenomenon is that both those terms can designate. So going along with this, this point, right, I think it's fair to say that your book, Riot Strike Riot, is one that attempts to propose a theory of contemporary riots, um, such as Ferguson 2014, Baltimore 2015, as they relate to the recurring crises of capital. Uh, so one key concept that you inherit from Marx uh, that allows you to think the relation between crisis and riot is that of the relative surplus population. So, of course, we cannot think of contemporary riots without thinking about race, right? So specifically, you talk about racialized surplus populations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of this, con of this concept to think contemporary struggles? Yeah, it's really fundamental, and it's a way of trying at once to get past a confusing appearance without abandoning the thing that brings that appearance into being. So the what I refer to as the first era of riots in the sort of early industrializing nations, the capitalist core, those are mostly around, you know, famously around um, the prices of food, bread riots, and, and so on and so forth. But in the current era of riots, the riot consistently appears as a race riot. Uh, and it's a challenge to link those two things and trying to understand that relationship rather than saying these are two just utterly distinct phenomena that happen to share a word. That's in some sense the project of the book. And in getting to that, I was trying to understand the reason that racialized populations in the United States often identified as uh, black populations, but not exclusively at all, uh, what those populations shared with the immiserated and starving populations in uh, the British countryside in 1740? Uh, and the answer is some things and not all things. The question is how a certain portion of the population comes to be excluded from the formal wage, from access to the wage, which is on the one hand means they're excluded from consistent and regular access to a paycheck to buy things, but also means they're excluded from certain political activities like the strike. And in the United States, but not just the United States, we have many good examples, Western Europe and Scandinavia, uh, that exclusion happens along racialized lines over and over again through a vast series of policies. In the US, you have Jim Crow in the 50s. You have uh, extended efforts by the labor unions to keep black workers out of the unions. Once they do get in, uh, last hired, first fired policy, so when deindustrialization begins, which happens earlier than people think, in the U.S., deindustrialization, the first sort of hints of it start to happen around 1960 in New York and Detroit and places like this. Uh, when deindustrialization starts to happen and, relatively speaking, the economy starts to shed industrial jobs, uh, it excludes racialized populations, especially black people first. So you get this population that, on the one hand, you can say abstractly, uh, they've been pushed into the marketplace, but out of the wage, uh, into the space of circulation, as I say, and out of production, but concretely are also, uh, you know, black Americans. In uh, uh, you know, in Detroit, is a, you couldn't find a better example. Uh, so relative surplus population as an abstract category uh, in, tends to line up with the, with the concrete phenomenon of race uh, in ways that... Um, are devastating and uh, uh, 
classic expression of ongoing racism. So, you know, you also inherit that sense of race and racialization processes from Sur Hall in the book, right? Uh, but also Ruth Wilson Gilmore, right? Very important. Um, in which, you know, the, the expression, right, of Sur Hall formulation is race is the modality through which class is lived. And you keep the form of this and instead argue that the riot is the modality through which surplus is lived, in a sense, evoking the relative surplus population, right? So some might argue that <clears throat> race exceeds these so-called economic determinations, let's say, um, in quotation marks. In particular, you know, Orlando Patterson and then Frank Wilderson sort of talk about gratuitous violence. And, and this kind of points to the importance of a libidinal economy rather than a political economy. This is, kind of, is often framed. And there are also some attempts to think race as existing, as it were, sort of outside capital relations, right? Uh, or at least that's what's proposed. However, you th I think you think of, of race um, with Gilmore and others, uh, Wilson Gilmore and others, as what I might call maybe the relative autonomy of race. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how you're thinking about race or processes of racialization uh, more, more uh, specifically? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think I heard you use that phrase two days ago, which is uh, the first time we met, and I found it extremely useful and wish you'd passed it along to me a, a couple of years before. It would have helped me as I was through this set of problems. One thing I'll say in general is that as a political matter, it seems to me that the clear question posed to us is how not to have to choose between these two positions. You know, Afro-pessimism, the tradition of Wilderson and so on that you mentioned, I think there's real reasons why it has so much intellectual traction now and people are so interested in it. Uh, and it would be absurd to dismiss it. At the same time, I, I, I'm thrown by the political implication that there's no possibility of political solidarity between uh, the black population, the, the bearers of social death, that's the phrase he takes from Patterson, uh, and other populations. And it seems to me that if there's any horizon of uh, revolutionary struggle, it's going to be because those solidarities, alliances, affiliations, organizational unities are possible. I, I would absolutely agree that political economic determinations can't explain all phenomena of race. That seems obviously true to me. Uh, it, moreover, it seems clear to me that despite some arguments to the contrary, race and racism pre-exist capitalism. Uh, it's, it's a thing that capital seizes upon and makes use of, particularly to produce differential valuings of human life so it can extract more surplus value by sort of arbitraging people's actual worth against each other as it's as it's produced by state violence um, so I think there's a you know there's a way we can think about the two of them together without having to fall into a debate at what the primary contradiction is and what's what's epiphenomenal I actually don't think we have to choose I think we can look at the problem and the problematic from different positions so even if one is trying to think from within a framework of critical political economy uh, one phrase I think I, I tried to make use of was the political economy of social death. So this category of social death, how could we think about that as being produced and reproduced by the needs, as it were, of capital to expand? Uh, which is not to say capital causes race, or I definitely don't want to make that claim. Uh, it has 
capital profits from race. It's, in fact, a fundamental way that capital uh, profits, uh, uh, it's fundamental to capital that it profits from race. So it's greatly in its interest to help reproduce it and to reproduce that condition of social death, even if it did not invent it. So I just don't think we need to choose, but we can see how these uh, phenomena not intersect, but collaborate. So as Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others have shown, the prison population in the United States is predominantly drawn from this racialized surplus population. Therefore, there's an overlap in the figure of contemporary rights. Uh, in Riot Strike Riot, you write that the riot is the other of incarceration. If the state's solution to the problem of crisis and surplus is prison, carceral management, the riot is a contest entered directly against this solution, a counterproposal of unmanageability. Can you tell us more about how you think the relationship between the prison and the riot? No, I think I said it as well as I could there. Uh, I mean, I can try and expand on that. I'm, I'm not sure uh, if I'll be telling you anything you don't already know. Um, the racialization of the prison population and the racialization of the population of riot uh, are the same phenomenon. And that's really, really important to say. Uh, you know, increasingly as the uh, sort of nexus of state and capital is unable to uh, absorb people into the wage and the particular discipline the wage offers, like that's what we forget. Many people, especially poor people, can be made to feel so desperate for and grateful for the wage because it's a way to access what they need to stay alive. Uh, that it's easy not to recognize it as, as the fundamental form of discipline uh, for, for people who require it, uh, right? That tells you, it tells you what time to get up in the morning, it tells you what time to go to bed at night, it tells you what to do in between those hours, and so on. Uh, so it's an incredible form of discipline. But when the wage stops working as a form of discipline, when you decide that instead uh, there's not any more room to include more workers and the disposable, the excluded, are going to be uh, black people, um, Latinx people, uh, and you start to exclude those, then you need some other form of discipline. So then you have this population, and, and the question is, how will they be disciplined? And can you discipline all of them? Can you jail all of them? Uh, and uh, if you can't, then the remainder, and, and clearly you can't, no matter how immense the state infrastructure is for, for incarceration, you simply can't imprison everyone. And the question is, uh, that population then that's subject to neither discipline that has ex escaped these things, uh, they're not going to do anything but fight. Uh, in that situation of immiseration, all you can do is die or fight. And how are they going to fight? And, and, you know, the book is for them. So, you know, you probably have heard about the prison strikes that have rocked uh, prisons in the United States in 2018 and 2016, I think people on the inside are thinking of the strike in a very broad sense. And so, you know, not only including the stoppage of labor, as it was the case in 2016, in 2018, you have a variety of tactics uh, that sought to mostly just interrupt or disrupt the carceral state apparatus. So I wonder how you're thinking, uh, you know, to what extent, um, you know, might we think with the model that you propose, the theory of, of riots and the relationship between crisis racialized surplus populations and the carceral uh, might tell us about these these strikes. So I'll call again on, we've, we've invoked Ruth Wilson Gilmore a couple of times, and I'll invoke her one more time. She has 
um, I think along with Craig Gilmore, they might have co-written it, this, this quite uh, scathing review of the movie 13, uh, which is this movie which argument is, right, that um, the new prison system is actually the new slavery, the uh, hyper-incarceration of black people is a form of enslavement toward um, getting free or extremely low-paid work. And their critique of this is, is that, well, this exaggerates the role of the for-profit prison industry, which is quite small, and that we really can't understand the prison system via uh, its generation of profits for capital. Maybe it does some small bit, uh, but we can't really understand it in that way, and we need to understand it as a mode of discipline or control over these, over these populations that can't be controlled otherwise. A way of managing surplus is her language that I draw on quite, quite heavily. So if we accept that, and I'm pretty persuaded by it, and if you've ever you know, talked with Ruthie, you'll be persuaded too. <laughs> um, uh, I'm pretty persuaded by this. And uh, if you are, then it, it, it's difficult if one is insisting on technical language to think of a prison strike as a strike. At the same time, one understands why people choose this language over and over again. The strike for many signifies a kind of refusal, and refusal is one of the great powers we have. It sort of reaffirms this moment of bodily autonomy, like you may have this power to dominate me fairly absolutely, but if I simply refuse to move, it's pretty hard for you to make me do things. So that power of refusal that begins with bodily autonomy is significant for people, and that's part of the reason people draw on the language of strike. Historically, the term strike has a lot of charisma because it seemed very effective in, you know, 1905 or 1917 or in the 1930s and so on. Uh, We've obviously seen a great waning of the labor strike in the United States since the 70s that's continuing, and we can imagine that in 50 years, the strike as, as a sort of framework won't have the same charisma and people won't, see, won't feel so compelled to say, you know, X strike, Y strike, Z strike. For the moment it does, and I understand that. So I understand why people choose that language. But I think, as you suggest, it might be useful to see past that language to the actual processes that are going on, much of which, which seem to involve trying to interfere with or interrupt the smooth reproduction of the functioning of systems, interrupt the uh, flow of goods and services uh, in various places. This is why, you know, riot and strike are these marquee names, but I really am more interested in the larger categories that their metonymy for, right, of the production struggle for for the strike and the circulation struggle for the riot, and to think about what the prisoners are doing. And here, I should note that I think you're actually more thoughtful about this than I am. I've spent more time and are, are quite insightful about it. And in some ways, I'm just repeating things I've learned from you. Uh, but the, the things that are going on inside the prison do seem to me to overflow the category of refusal, um, of work stoppage, and to engage in other kinds of interferences or interruptions or confrontations with the reproduction of that particular system, the, the prison system, the local prison, the, the larger prison system. Uh, so it might be useful to try and understand what's happening there in some framework beyond the strike. Yeah. I feel like there's so many other things we could ask, but um, since we're bumping up against time, is there anything specifically that you wanted to include um, that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet? Well, yes, but it's sort of self-interested. So 
when we have these conversations, uh, it's an interesting opportunity to revisit the things I was trying to think about in the book. And when I revisit them, I also uh, re-encounter the incompleteness of the things I was trying to think about. We always have to be okay with incompleteness. Life is finite. Thousand-page books are tedious. I tried to keep it short. I knew I was leaving a lot of things out. Uh, but so, you know, that last thing I would say is, if this inspires in you or your listeners a sense of avenues that need to be explored uh, or reckoned with further or reconsidered, I would love to hear it because I want to continue my thinking, but I can use all the help I can get. Yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us on the show today and also for the excellent work. Yeah, it was really a pleasure to be with you. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes or read their transcripts on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.